0: Next time, I'm going first because you just covered about half of the material that's on my, uh, <laughs> on my speech. I don't do this. I don't speak uh, publicly, so bear with me. I'll, I'll get through it, and hopefully uh, uh, you'll get something out of it. Before I start, though, uh, I want to address my Marine colleagues. It was pretty slick of y'all to with your birthday, the day before Veterans Day, because I don't know about anybody else in this room, but it's starting to feel like birthday week and not birthday day. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to petition that we move the Air Force birthday to the day after Veterans Day. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, thanks for the opportunity to let me speak today. Uh, I think it's important that we do talk about uh, the most recent group of veterans, the the veterans who served during uh, OIF, and during OEF, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. They're the newest and the most recent generation to join a long-standing legacy of veterans that have served honorably over the years. World War I, from 1917 to 1918. World War II, from 1941 to 1945. The Korean War, from 1950 to 53. The Vietnam War, from '62 to '73—I think it was actually '75—that's what they were. Persian Gulf War in '91, and now Iraq and Afghanistan, which began in 2001 and 2003, respectively, and I would argue is still continuing. Since 2001, 1.9 million military personnel have deployed to support OIF and OEF. That's a pretty Large group of veterans that have returned and have re-entered our community, and now represent uh, everything that has occurred since then. For more than two decades, more than two decades, 20 years, we have sustained combat operations in uh, Southeast Asia in a single theater, supporting multiple operations. And, and like you, Jeff, I think one of the common traits, I know for me and for you, uh, of these veterans is multiple deployments. I've done four, you've done four, uh, and I think we're probably on the lower end of the scale from some of the uh, high-operation, low-density, high-demand units. OIF and OEF was the largest and longest-standing mobilization of Reserve and National Guard personnel since the Korean War. Those are our citizen soldiers. Those aren't, and I'm not taking anything away because I've been I've been in all three services. I've been active, reserve, and guard. And By the way, the guard is the best-kept secret in the Air Force. So now you know. But the guard and reserve are your neighbors. They're your citizen soldiers. They're the people that have a, supposedly have a, a civilian job, a place in our community, and then they activate at a time of need. They, they, they change hats and they deploy. And that is a big challenge as well. Um, because you're playing multiple roles. I was, uh, I was deployed on an operation one time and um, I was talking with a two-star general because that's what happens when you start making rank, you start talking to other, <laughs> to, to, to higher ups. And anyway, we were having a conversation and he was asking what I do at home. And over a period of the time before that conversation, I had been on title 32 or title 10 orders for more than five or six months every year, every year. And so he, he made the, uh, almost a uh, casual comment that he, I'm beginning to wonder which one's the part-time job and which one's your, active, your full-time job, and I agreed with him. And to be honest with you, the full-time job was my guard position at that point. My part-time job was back here in the community. When Matt approached me to speak today, I was a little reluctant to talk about my personal experiences, and I won't uh, kind of boast through my position because it just feels like you're bragging. But let me offer you a little bit of my experiences just because I think it's some context. And I think some of it, a lot of it's universal. And that's the way I want to offer it. Uh, it's representative of what a, um, an individual that served during this time period probably experienced is very similar to what I had. Uh, for me, it started in 1988. Uh, well, it started a little bit earlier than that. But it um, started in 1988 when I arrived at my unit. Uh, and I, and i'm only going to offer this because it'll have you understand where i'm coming from 1988 i was in limestone maine Loring air force base it's a very uh remote part of maine there's lobster maine and there's potato maine we were up in the, the part that the canadians didn't want <laughs> so um but i arrived up there it was a really unique time you think about it 1988 we wrapped up vietnam in 1975 arguably so we had been um, over 15 years, we've never, the, most of our force structure had not had any sustained or large scale deployment operations. We'd had a lot of us, uh, a lot of very distinguished operations, but they were specific units in very small geography. But we hadn't really mobilized in large force. And so what that meant is, um, to be quite honest, we weren't really prepared for that. Well, All that changed. that posturing changed. we were training hard, as we do, uh, for a mission uh, that was largely undefined at the moment. And then in August uh, 2nd of 1990, Iraq rolled into uh, one of our allies' c- countries, Kuwait. And we, literally within days, our unit was activated and deployed, and we were sitting on a largely unknown island called Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Yeah, it's a rocker, right? (laughs) It's a a very small piece of coral, is what it is. Um, And at that time, nobody had even heard of it. And we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, Well, we knew what we were doing. But we had no idea what we were walking into. Um, And then we proceeded to stay there. We were there for eight and a half months, which eventually uh, morphed into Desert Storm. And it became uh, combat operations. We flew combat uh, missions up into Iraq. The deployment process was problematic and that, at the time, uh, we hadn't done it in a long time. So when we left our families, my wife Denise is here, uh, she was at the base, and it, as I said, it was kind of a remote base. So there wasn't a lot of infrastructure built to support our family units, units when we were deployed. Uh, and so the base became a very, uh, very quiet, distant, and, and kind of problematic type of thing. When we came back after Desert Storm, uh we literally the biggest concern at the time was that you guys were out of training uh standards and you needed to be mission capable and so in order order to achieve mc status you had to we go right back into the training cycle there was no uh stand down Uh, there was no mental health screening as there is now thankfully um and it i would argue whether or not it's 100 percent effective but there was none of that we just returned back into our uh into into our unit and uh, continued to carry on. For many of us, that was the first time we had uh, confronted anything uh, that was the reality of what the mission was. In fact, for some of my colleagues, it was a little problematic. Um, We had been training, so that kind of gave the illusion that that was our mission at the time. And then here we were in combat operations, and then we came back. As Jeff alluded to, and and I've offered this advice to many, of my colleagues of junior rank is that the deployment process is a very individual process how you approach it and how you go through it is unique to every single individual when you return that surprisingly returning from a deployment is the most difficult part in my mind it's like trying to jump on a moving treadmill uh, that's already at like the highest speed you can set it on Uh, And then you try to come back into it. I've done that four times. And to be honest with you, it hasn't gotten any easier each time. Um, For a lot of people, reintegration uh, requires a certain amount of coping skills. And I've tried them all. Some are healthy and some are unhealthy. Uh, it's, It's very difficult to do. The other thing that struck me as I went fast forward where uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I deployed in 2003, 2006, and then I went back in 10, during the big push. And every time I went back into the theater, what struck me the most was the level of operations, particularly in 09 when we got there. Bagram, Kabul, Jalalabad, Kandahar, Leatherneck, Mosul, they were all red hot at the time, and they had grown. I, saw, I was there in '03, Bagram grew in 06, and by the time I got there in 09, it was a massive operation. But when I got there, I kept thinking to myself, I didn't see any of this in the news. I didn't see any of this when I was home. Uh, people were just kind of living their lives. No knock on you for living your life. Um, but nobody was aware of what was going on over there. And it, it was... Um, it was kind of surprising, it gets right in your face when you arrive there, particularly in was like something out of a movie. Uh, it was just massive at the time, it was absolutely massive. My strike is, it sounds like a, a strange thing to say, um, but as I went through those deployment cycles, being in theater was far more comfortable for me than being home. Uh, It was like a nice, comfortable blanket that I put on. I knew the structure. I was very mission-focused. When I was there, that's what you did, and everybody around you was doing that. Uh, And you have your unit, your other other, uh, service men and women around you, and that's a very comforting thing. When I would come home, the chaos at home was what was unsettling the most. Uh, I, I developed my own... Coping mechanisms. So when I came back, uh, there was a period of time, you know, you kind of are a little distant. Uh, you don't really engage. And then over time, you kind of work yourself back into the thing. Things change. When you leave on a deployment, uh, everybody else's life keeps moving, but yours freezes. So when you come back, you try to jump back in where you left it. It's just the simple things that really bother you the most. The way she organized the cabinet, uh, just her daily routine. Didn't include me initially, um, you know those kind of things. They're things that kind of like really kind of uh, bite at you a little bit when you're doing those deployments. Over the 20 years that we've been engaged in OIF, OEF, you think that the service, uh, military service in general, has gotten better at in at. at mobilizing people, preparing you to go downrange and come back, and to some extent they have. But because it's a, not a one-size-fits-all, it's really difficult for uh, anyone to set up those kind of uh, redeployment schedules. But it's gotten better. Now you come back, you, you have to stay on active duty for a couple of months, even if you're a Guards member, and it's kind of like a little deprogramming uh, <laughs> thing that they go through. But what's really important I think for veterans, when you have deployed and then you've come back, are organizations like this, like the Granola Veterans Council, like the American Legion. And for me, I've found the the NAM Knights. I I heard so many, I have a couple of things I'm going to throw out there, but I was watching a video one of our NAM Knights chapters had done recently, and two statements jumped out at me really loud. They were interviewing uh, at least one, one of the members of the Lehigh chapter, and his coping mechanism, he said, when I came back, I bought a Harley, and I rode it, and that was my way of, that was my, my coping mechanism, something I could easily relate to, I, I did the same thing. But what he, the next thing he said really struck me, he said, I, I bought a Harley, and I rode it, for four years, I rode it alone, and then I found the Nam we should not let veterans of any war or conflict, now or in the future, when they come back right alone, figuratively or literally, for 40 years. The other statement that is in that video is, veterans need other veterans. And that is so true. Organizations like the American Legion, the VFW, DAV, Marine Corps League, they provide a network it's not that we sit around and tell stories we do but all we do is rip on each other, <laughs> we love each other. right but we don't we don't do the there i was stories it's just that that familiar blanket that i was talking about that comfort when i would deploy and i would say all right now i got this I, that i know is what these organizations do for veterans so again we should never let a veteran ride alone for 40 years until he has to find somebody veterans need veterans these are that's the reason purpose for these organizations and it's the thing that i value the most thank you